Hello and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. I'm Gunnar. And the topic for this episode is the neuron doctrine. The neuron doctrine being the idea that neurons are individual anatomical units, individual cells, which seems perhaps obvious and simple, but like many obvious simple things, it was hotly debated among scientists for many years. So we are going to talk about the history of this idea and the historical debate that uh, it was the center of. And then we're also going to talk about some modern rethinkings or kind of modern reactions to the neuron doctrine, thinking about its role in today's neuroscience. So for the history, we read um, a piece called Neuron Theory, the Cornerstone of Neuroscience on the Centenary of the Nobel Prize Award to Santiago Ramon y Cajal. And this was published in 2006. And the first author is Francisco Lopez Munez. And then the kind of two uh, modern rethinkings, the first one is called The Neuron Doctrine Redux, and the first author of that is Theodore H. Bullock, and that's from 2007. And then the next one is from the Neuron Doctrine to Neural Networks, and this is from um, 2015, and the author is Raphael Uste. So we can start with the, uh, the historical perspective to kind of lay the groundwork for what the Neuron Doctrine is and how it became such an established part of neuroscience. I mean, for, for context, uh, just sort of to set the scene a little bit, I guess there are two main figures in the in the sort of standard narrative that most neuroscientists regularly hear about with this are Camilo Golgi and Santiago Ramon y Cajal um, on sort of characteristically opposite sides of this uh, story, where Golgi had essentially developed a stain and so individual neurons would be like isolated from their neighbors. They would be colored in when you looked at them under a microscope. And this was despite the fact that Golgi sort of was on the side of this debate that there weren't separations between neurons. So he, his, the argument, and we'll get into this in more detail, but the argument was essentially that the entire nervous system or much of the nervous system was connected physically. Um, and... Cajal used Golgi's stain ultimately to sort of upend his Golgi's view of this and, you know, argue that uh, the neurons were, were, separ- were physically separated. And he won a Nobel Prize for this. And Golgi also won the Nobel Prize. It was shared between them. So, yeah, so the kind of pre, pre-acceptance of the neuron doctrine, the theory that was popular was called the reticular theory, which is this idea that all of the, the neural bits and fibers are all actually physically connected in in some way. So even though neurons might have kind of little processes coming out of them, all of these thin things that came out of um, neural cell bodies were actually kind of, they, um, they merged into each other. So there were no physical separations between individual neurons. And that was, uh, it's kind of attributed to this guy, Gerlach, uh, Joseph von Gerlach, it's called Gerlach's reticular theory. Um, and so this was in like 1871. This was the reticular theory was kind of prominent. And that's around the time when the Golgi stain was developed. The Golgi stain was developed in 1873. And so this belief was already in place. And then Golgi used this stain that he developed to get more detail about the shape of neurons, but not um, disprove the theory in any way. He actually yeah, was a proponent of that theory. My favorite thing is all the um, fun German words for these things. So Gerlach, um, he had his own stain that he used, and he said that the gray matter is a dense mesh of thin filaments, and the word that was given to that was Nervenwassernetz, which I think is fun. Okay, I mean, it was. I think it's clear in the, in the sort of broad historical narrative that Golgi, the Golgi stain, by staining individual neurons kind of in retrospect, like it's obvious that was like a super big deal. And that would, would clearly be the death knell for, uh, for this theory. But like what other, were there other sort of controversies that we can, we, that, that sort of we're, we're, we're showing in the cracks? Like if you were Golgi and you saw the stains and you looked at the neurons, why did you think that they were connected to each other? You just thought the thing only went so far or something? Or They thought that they kind of 
uh, joined up again. So you'd have like a kind of a, a cell body with stuff coming out of it, and then it would get really close to the stuff that came out of other cell bodies, and they believed that they then just formed into one physically continuous thing. Right. I mean, I, I guess when you originally learn about this, it's just sort of, it's presented very briefly as the historical narrative. But I guess if you, if you put yourself in that perspective, I, I think people had lots of notions that in some ways were potentially well-founded. Like, for example, that maybe the idea that there would be physical separations between the neurons, how would they communicate? And the idea that chemicals at that synapse would be sort of fast enough to... Which we now know is the answer. But yeah, yeah like have at the time, like alternative hypotheses might have seemed kind of complicated. The idea that like there would be chemicals that would take an electrical signal, convert it into chemicals between the neurons, and then convert it back to electrical signal. Like I think these things, if you put yourself in the mindset of people... Golgi hypothesized that the reason for these filaments that came off of the neural bodies was for um, like absorption of nutrients. He thought that that was their role and that they weren't so important for communication. So, I mean, they had hypotheses about why they were seeing the structures that they were, because a lot of the basic structures were seen. Like it was kind of known that there's one big thing that comes out of a neuron body, which we now call an axon, and then kind of branch-like smaller things that come out of that, which we now call dendrites. They had seen those features, as far as I can tell, but they were just hypothesizing different purposes for them. And because you can't see, you know, the separation, the physical separation that well, it does kind of look like they all mass together again. It's not crazy to believe um, that they that they do, that they kind of become one thing when they meet up. So how did Kahal actually, what, what was convincing to him? Like what made him convinced? Yeah, so there's a few different things. There's kind of the people who did work before Cahal did his most famous work to prove it. And so, like, it wasn't the case that, like, everyone was 100% about the particular theory. And then Cahal came along and was like, no, you're all wrong. Like, there was, you know, a setup. You know, there were people debating it. There were people who had evidence for the neuron doctrine before Cahal came along. Um, So we can talk about some of those people and the evidence that they had. So the three, the three big names that seem to come up for being against the reticular theory before Cajal are uh, Hees, Nansen, and Forel. I don't know how true this is, but this article presents some of the people who came before him, like Hiss or His or whatever the hell the guy's name was, and Forel as kind of having come up with the basic ideas, essentially. But then Cajal is presented as being this heroic scientist because he did all these like painstaking, beautiful experiments over many, many decades, like, you know, banging away at basically the same theory and really like demonstrating it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as an aside, I think it's interesting, actually, what people even consider an experiment. Right. I mean, Cajal, in some sense, and I I mean, this this kind of gets brought up a little bit in his his autobiography, which I read a long time ago, Um, but like. He, in some ways, I mean, Cajal wanted to be an artist, and much of what Cajal did was just sort of observe, like, produce preparations and then draw them in, in like, great detail. I mean, after, of course, staining the cells. So that is kind of an experimental technique. But he wasn't doing, like, the kinds of things that we, we think of him for. He wasn't really doing experiments in the conventional sense. Yeah, it was all just very observational. I mean, and to, to be fair, I don't think that was an anomaly at the time. This is what everyone was doing. They were staining neurons and they were looking at them, which is kind of crazy. Like this was this whole thing was like a debate about perception. There was there's parts where they say like, you know, this person claimed that they saw the filaments rejoin and become one and Cajal just thinks that they were hallucinating or something like that. Like it really was just like people claiming to have seen things. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and some of this is even sm- smaller stuff than their microscopes could have yeah. resolved yeah, yeah, yeah. in some sense. Mm. We should give credit though. I mean, they were developing these stains and Cajal um, improved on the Golgi stain, which I think is part of why he was able to make kind of better observations than were previously done. But improving on the stain means you. I mean, right? It means developing uh, the sort of procedure by which you would apply the stain, right? In, yeah. In this yeah, case, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah so, so it's like it's still the same. What silver nitrate? Uh, um, so I can explain very quickly the process of the staining. It is silver chromate. Silver chromate. Okay. Yeah, and so you fix the brain slice for several days in potassium bichromate, and then you apply this silver nitrate, which will then it like 
infiltrate some of the neurons and turn them black. But so, I mean, that's like the basics of the procedure, but like to make the cells, like to actually cut up the tissue so that it doesn't like degrade and to like wash it the right ways. These are kind of extra little tricks that people will presumably use to make it stain better. And so like improving upon the stain means using the same basic principle, but like trial and error. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like fitting neural networks, uh, or, deep or networks, or baking. <laughs> Lots of informal tips and tricks. Um, but yeah, mm. Connor, I kind of agree. The the way they described it, some of the research that these earlier people did, it was like, oh, that's like to me very convincing. Like that's good work towards proving the neuron doctrine. And then they just kind of assert, but like, Cahal was miles and miles more advanced than them. <laughs> it wasn't right. clear to me why Cahal was the most convincing of all these experiments. But we can say what some of them did. So, well, so I liked I liked the story about Nansen, who like I, I read like the Wikipedia article for you know in addition to these articles and basically I mean he's more famous in some sense not as a neuroscientist and he, I guess he was kind of like a marine biologist and kind of interested in zoology so he was doing like a little bit of neuroscience as these people did um, and so his thesis kind of talks about uh, essentially his like. Basically, during his PhD, like the project was like he failed to see the parts where the neurons connected. Yeah, he used the Golgi stain and he didn't see the connections. And it was like I can't find any evidence that it's one, that it's one thing. Like <laughs> it seems like they're disconnected. But like the dominant theory, this like I mean, and then he just kind of stopped doing neuroscience after this. Because he was clearly bad at neuroscience <laughs> and didn't see the evidence that everyone else saw. And so then he went on yeah. to like explore the North Pole. And win a Nobel Peace Prize uh, because he quit neuroscience. <laughs> so it's really good that he quit neuroscience, probably. <laughs> so that that was a cool story. Yeah. And um, Hiss looked at embryonic tissue and also looked more at the peripheral nervous system rather than um, like the brain. And so he used that to, to his, speculate that there were not connections between the neurons based on how they developed and um, the observations that he made in, in the periphery. I love the way they write. It's so rhetorical. Like, listen to this quote, right? It is high time to realize, to release histology from all physiological obligations and adopt the only opinion that is in harmony with the facts, namely that the nerve cells are independent elements that are never anastomosed and that nervous propagation is verified by contacts at the level of certain apparatus or cogs devices. It's lovely. It's like a novel. That was Cahal? Yeah. Yeah, I find it beautiful, but also like hard to understand at times because it's so verbose and there's like so many clauses and subclauses. <laughs> like I'm enjoying yeah, this, yeah, but I don't yeah, know yeah. if I'm learning anything. <laughs> I think it makes it so much more obvious, like the social aspects of, of what they're doing. Like the, the like, cause you know, there's all this stuff in the other article about how Cahal was a big salesman of himself and all that. And like we critique scientists nowadays yes, a bit yes, for that, yeah. but it's a bit more like hidden. But like, he's just, it's so obvious like that he's doing that. Like he's, there's another thing where he was talking about his and Pharrell. And he goes on, he says, oh no, apparently it's, an, it's a clear allusion to their work. He doesn't directly name them, but he says, vaguely accepting the fact of immediate transmission or interneuronal articulation without indicating precisely between which cellular appendices it is produced is just as comfortably dangerous as the well-worn reticular theory. It's like, really? Is it like, I don't know, I guess it is kind of, but like if they're, you know, it's such, it's so obviously kind of ad hominem, like it's funny. So they were on his side and he was still talking shit about them. Yeah, yeah. It's so like, I don't know, so much bravado. Just as comfortably dangerous fools. Like. Yeah. So I, I guess part of it is maybe their boldness is less self-conscious cynicism or something. Like today, people, yeah. I think, know that they would be denounced for making such rhetorically brash claims yeah. like you could say that kind of stuff in private but like you're not gonna get past peer review in nature making yeah. rhetorical claims like that this is what yeah. blogs are for yeah i guess yeah maybe that's <laughs> and i think we should note that kahal's major findings were self-published he like started oh, wow. a journal published three volumes of it or three issues of it to you know put out his own stuff and then that was the end of it <laughs> But That's it is cool. like now it's it's I mean, it is it's it's a funny discrepancy because in those days, right, like this was just you were you were just kind of on your own. These people were eccentric. I mean, Cajal like was probably doing much of the stuff like kind of ex- exclusively by himself. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't hmm. think so. Well, he, so he learned the Golgi stain in Valencia 
and then he moved to Barcelona where he used it. I mean, I think there there were networks of researchers. No, no, I don't mean like, but I just mean it was probably even less a social pursuit than it is now. Like, sure, like certainly, you like the communication speed was so much exactly. slower. Yeah, than, yeah. yeah. So he's like, he gets very excited about these these results, and he's he's like writing extremely elaborate things to describe them so that he can like mail them off excitedly to people who he won't hear back from for a while yeah that's fair. Yeah. i mean that that's it's, it's just a very it's a very different time i don't know yeah so we'll i guess we'll get to like the triumph of the neuron doctrine in a bit but we should uh contextualize this debate so this was taking place in the 1870s and 1880s the cell theory the notion that living things are made up of cells was kind of started in the 1830s and considered consolidated by the 1850s. Like, people were on board with the cell theory of organisms. So it's kind of funny that these neuroscientists were holding out, like, oh yeah, most things are made of cells, but the brain is one big mass of tissue. You know, it's a bit odd, but perhaps not out of character for people who study the brain to consider it a very special organ and not, you know, uh, controlled by the norms of other tissues. So, but yeah, so to be very clear, right, like the current version of cell theory is essentially that like the entire body is composed of cells. And the neuron doctrine in that sense is just kind of a subset of cell theory. So in, in a certain sense, it doesn't really have so special of a place in retrospect other than due to the sort of historical weirdnesses of how it was discovered. Uh, Golgi, for a while at least, people on that side of the argument refused to accept the conclusions. And I believe it was stated that even when the Nobel Prize, the prize was awarded, so Cajal and Golgi both got to give speeches. And, you know, Cajal was essentially triumphant at the, when he was receiving the Nobel Prize. And Golgi kind of still didn't believe it. And they kind of took jabs at one another. Um, yeah, Golgi in his Nobel acceptance speech claims that his uh, he had like a watered down version of the reticular theory that he was still uh, fighting for called the diffuse network and just kind of claims that that theory is more important. And Cajal also kind of, <laughs> you know, speaks ill of Col- Golgi in code. I don't know if this is from his Nobel Prize, but uh, the Nobel Prize speech, but Cajal at one point said... It's a sad truth that almost nobody can totally extricate themselves from the tradition and spirit of their times. Meaning, like, Golgi can't move on from... I mean, these things kind of come up probably a lot. And I think it is often the case that scientists refuse to change their views if they're past a certain stage of life or if if they were big proponents of of one of those views, especially. Um, But in, in cell theory... One, one specific topic is how does, so many cells in the body, neurons in, and muscle cells, uh, for example, have voltage potentials across their membrane. And like the electrical properties of neurons derive from the fact that there's a, a electrical potential across the membrane that changes. And the sort of now extremely dominant, like essentially like factually accepted uh, notion of this is that there's an ion pump which is using energy to pump uh, the, the particles to opposite sides. There were other theories, and I, I, it's hard for me to tell based on the history how, compar- like how, how divisive this was because people have done a good job of not teaching these in neuroscience classes, which I think is appropriate because there's not very much contemporary evidence for them. But there's a guy, uh, Gilbert Ling, who is still around actually um, a- advocating specific alternatives to... Uh, to there being ion pumps. And I mean, he would basically argue that uh, there, are, there are other uh, mechanisms for how the potential arises, and they get kind of eccentric. Um, some have notions related to like structured water, where like the water is held in like a, a ionic lattice of some sort. He actually kind of the same way that Cajal did, I guess, in some sense, uh, publishes his own journal called the Physiological Chemistry and Physics and Medical NMR Journal. I certainly find that to be a red flag by today's standards. By today's like standards? self-published yeah, science yeah. is not, you shouldn't pay much attention to it. But he has, he has, he, he names his articles really great things, like uh, History of the Membrane Pump Theory of the Living Cell from its beginning in the mid-19th century to its disproof 45 years ago, though still taught worldwide today as established truth. Also, titles that are 
potentially multiple sentences long is a red flag for me. Yeah. No, oh, and another weird. one is uh, another another cool title is uh, historically a historically significant study that it once disproves the membrane pump theory and confirms the nanoprotoplasm is the ultimate physical basis of life, yet so simple and low cost that it could easily be repeated by many high school biology classrooms worldwide. It sounds like an infomercial. (laughs) And yet this is, well, I was going to say this is how, you know, science is done. There's debates, but I feel like in this particular case, this This is not necessarily. Yeah, but it's an example of, you know, I don't know, there are more legitimate debates that happen currently in neuroscience that I want to believe are more similar to the neuron doctrine reticular theory debate. But, I mean, maybe this is how it, like, how but people I, so view that. I, I don't, I don't know. know if this, if contemporary young people were educated about Gilbert Ling's ideas, I'm not convinced that those ideas would totally dissipate. So um, people don't look up the old things or they're just convinced by the new evidence yeah i want to believe it's the latter convinced by the new evidence but like you think that there would be people who would learn about it and believe the evidence enough to keep fighting for it and trying to supply evidence for it you know you want to think that everyone who's who's deciding to do a phd in a certain field is going to be driven by the evidence but i think people are driven you know partly by what the people in their social networks believe i think it is there's a self-sustaining component because it's if if there is a professor at a university who has a laboratory who studies something that lends credence to the idea. And that is what would be required for young people to be trained in that idea. Yeah, yeah. But they also have to get grant funding and things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, if it's possible for you to to work on this theory, it means that there's someone at a university who has funding, presumably, to, to work on it, which makes you think that there's a possibility that it's worth working on. And so maybe, I mean, that could be misleading, but obviously... There, you know, people differ in what they believe is worthwhile to work on. Okay, so I can sum up the string of things that happened that led to the neuron doctrine being pretty accepted. And so, um, yeah, so Cajal kind of improved upon the Golgi stain and used it to stain cells in um, several different tissues. So he looked at cerebellum of bird. He also eventually looked at retina and spinal cord. Um... And so he, after doing that, made these like elaborate drawings that are rather famous in neuroscience and kind of concluded that they, these things don't touch if you stain them properly and you look at them properly. He also um, identified di- dendritic spines for the first time. So these are these things that come off of um, the dendrites. So the dendrites are kind of where kind of neurons pick up signals from and the spines are where they connect to other neurons. So there's kind of this little thing that juts out from the filament that's called a dendritic spine. And he was able to see those um, and kind of uh, identify those for the first time. And so his first self-published piece was in May of 1888. And then he published two more um, issues of his journal just continuing to document these things in different tissues. And eventually these things in 1889 were published into German journals and he spoke at a conference. So they were kind of accepted by um, by the, the scientists of the time. So yeah, so he kind of took off and people liked him and he was accepted is kind of the simplistic view of it. But there were still people like Golgi and some of his followers that kind of held on to the reticular theory idea. Um, In 1891, a guy named Waldair wrote an article that was kind of essentially a review article. There wasn't like much new science in it, but he kind of reviewed the studies that showed uh, that support the neuron doctrine. And that's actually where the word neuron was first used and also dendrites. And then in 1892, Cajal came up with the idea, which he called uh, laws of dynamic polarization, which is basically the idea that neurons take in information in their dendrites and that's passed on to the soma or the cell body and then that's passed on through the axon of of the cell which um, he kind of deduced from the anatomy of the cell and turns out to be correct so i mean certainly there there's reasons for why he's such a a big figure in the history of neuroscience so i mean most neuroscientists know this because people reproduce kahal's diagrams frequently but an interesting detail in Cajal's diagrams is that they frequently have like little arrows drawn along the processes, like the, the axon, which were basically like his guess of the direction of information flow in some sense, which he didn't really 
like they weren't these weren't validated this were these kind of anatomically derived intuitions i mean in some cases it's kind of a bit obvious like when he has a picture of the retina um and he he's able to kind of see that that one end of the cell is facing kind of where the where light the, comes in and the other one's going into the brain. You yeah, can yeah. Deduce, you can guess that yeah. there's, there's going to be an arrow there. But he does this kind of all over the brain when he draws his diagram in, in many of the diagrams that he draws. Yeah. Um, yeah, and some people like still continue to fight for this notion that the neurons were connected by claiming that there were fine uh, filaments that connected cells at the synapse, but uh, Cajal fought against that as well. He's a very you know, ardent defender of his theory. In the 1950s, electron microscopy uh, became a tool that could be used in biology. And so this is a way of kind of imaging tissues that uses electrons. And so you can get very fine resolution. And so that was, uh, it's, that's considered the standard that you need to actually prove that there's a synapse between cells and to show that there's a space between the cells. So they come close to each other, but they don't physically connect. Um, and so the true, in some way, validation of the neuron theory or the neuron doctrine came in the 1950s with the use of, of EM to image neurons. But uh, another kind of big figure in this history is um, Sherrington, who was a scientist who um, kind of followed in Cajal's work and came up with or discovered a lot of the other big things that we believe to be true um, about neurons. So I believe the, the word synapse was uh, first used by Sherrington to describe where neurons, you know, don't technically meet, but get close to each other and communicate. And Sherrington also um, discovered that some neurons are excitatory and excite the neurons they connect to, and some are inhibitory. So a lot of Sherrington's work is also kind of bundled up in the ideas of the neuron doctrine. And Sherrington won the Nobel Prize in 1921 for his work. So I think that about covers the historical aspects of the neuron doctrine. And we can kind of talk about these two pieces that try to revisit it and kind of consider if it's still the correct idea to be at the core of neuroscience. Because the neuron doctrine is kind of considered, you know, very core to neuroscience and very essential to the understanding of the brain. And so for this, I think the ideas about Sherrington's work and kind of just a lot of work that has been subsequent to what Cajal did have um, kind of the, the way people think about the neuron doctrine now is not in quite the strict way that it was debated back then. Just the question of do neurons touch each other? Like people accept that there are synapses that have chemical messages where the neurons don't physically touch each other, but send chemicals from one to the other. That's accepted. It's um, also now ironically accepted that there are some synapses that are electrical. Like us, I mean, we call them electrical synapses, but they're just basically continuous contacts between. Yeah. So these are cells. called gap junctions, and they are actually places where two neurons meet and have basically a little pore that they can send their internal cell guts between and that <laughs> is called cytoplasm usually <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but that can includes charged particles and so they can send electrical messages um, through these these pores these gap junctions and gap junctions are not nearly as common as uh, chemical synapses in mammals um, their ratios differ by species so yeah that is a way in which um, the neuron doctrine is some, in some way is kind of false. And that comes up... In this up, very strict sense. But I mean, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I think... So that this comes up in this Neuron Doctrine Redux article as one kind of reason to be rethinking the neuron doctrine. And I think that that's very valid. I mean, that's the, that addresses the exact anatomical question that was being debated. And so yeah, to know yeah. that there are cases where neurons do touch is very relevant to, you know, the neuron doctrine. Yeah, definitely. You might imagine that, like, maybe you know, maybe gap junctions turn out to be like really unimportant or something, but we don't know, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think they're more common amongst inhibitory cells. So that suggests, I mean, some potential function for them if they're kind of specialized in certain ways. Yeah. And also, like there are like some organisms that have a lot of them. Oh, that's so, right too, yeah. I mean, some of this could just be, it depends on the organism and people didn't, historically study human brains all the time they were often studying 
other organisms. And I think marine animals were also like a particularly common animal to be studying back mm-hmm. in the day. Yeah, so that seems very relevant to me because it does change, you know, how we think about the function of an individual neuron if it's actually connected physically to other neurons is then the unit kind of the group of neurons that are all connected. Um, because so their definition in this article for the neuron doctrine is the idea that um, a neuron is an anatomically and functionally distinct cellular unit that arises through differentiation of a precursor neuroblast cell. So it's like partially a very um, molecular biological definition of how they come about and then being anatomically distinct, but also this throwing in of functionally distinct, I think is very much part of like the way that the neuron doctrine is thought about today, but not necessarily how it was originally conceived. This notion that we should conceptualize the base unit of the brain as neurons. Yeah, which seems like potentially. So it's not. It's 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 only linguistically or something related to this very much more strict um, original idea. In in the historical literature, I don't think we should under underrate what people were like into like we're talking about i mean yes they were talking literally about the anatomical separation but they were speculating on function right a lot and they were doing their anatomy with the intent of that informing the their understanding Mm. of the mechanisms and the function of how the brain was working so i I don't think that's right like while the historical evidence and the experiments were anatomical and so in some sense we could we could restrict the historical version of the neuron doctrine to anatomy i i don't think it's outside of the spirit and possibly even some of the statements made back then uh of that that they were interested in function and presuming that these anatomical insights would relate to the functional separation of neurons and and that the neurons were communicating yeah. I think that's fair. I think for me, the reason that I kind of feel iffy about this inclusion of a neuron as a functional unit is just because it's so much more vague and subjective than anatomical unit. Yeah, that's the yeah. point. Anatomical unit is something that you presumably can prove. Functional unit is just, do I want to think about the neuron as the functional unit, or do I want to think about groups of neurons, or do I want to think about subparts of neurons? Yeah, you know? it's much less clearly defined what it means. Yeah, I, I don't know that it can be true or false. It just is a potential way of thinking about things but so that's what so this this um the neuron redux article i feel like uh makes a lot of good points that are kind of relevant even to the anatomical question um because they talk about as we said the gap junctions but they also talk about um the fact that neurons can connect to astrocytes which are these cells that um people think of as supportive cells but uh, there are ways in which you know they interact with neurons and they can actually respond when neurons are firing a lot. That changes the astrocytes and the glial cells and lets them emit things that they wouldn't have been emitting if the neurons were inactive. So there's kind of this this whole other system that's going on that could potentially put into question you know what we consider an anatomical unit in that way. Oh, and there's also the fact that dendrites are um, believed to kind of have quite a bit going on. Right. <laughs> um, more so than if you think of a neuron as kind of just an input-output unit, you know, it gets some inputs and that turns into an output. Actually, components of the dendritic system can kind of have their own inputs that they kind of do computations on, and those turn into outputs that they send into the the main body of the cell, and different parts of the dendritic tree can have their own inputs and their own computations. And so in that way, um, a neuron is more than just kind of a single unit, but actually has multiple subunits that are probably relevant computationally. Um, and you could potentially think of maybe as kind of anatomically separate in a way, depending on, on how it's laid out. I mean, there's still it's still all one cell, one continuous cell. Yeah. So, I mean, this this kind of like this kind of detail and this, I think, is a thing that it's it, like clearly it is relevant for contemporary neuroscience that the oversimplified notion of a neuron as like one thing that's got an input and an output and kind of works in a very stereotypical way. Like clearly it's relevant for contemporary neuroscience to grapple with that. But at the same time, like I think progress was made in large part because people were able to like allow for conceptual simplifications. 
And I, I wonder, like, I, I do think a lot about, like, in the context of, like, you know, what stage of science is, how relevant the details are. So, like, it feels like a late stage science concern to think about, like, very complex uh, stuff that deviates from, like, properties of the things you're studying that deviate from the the sort of core functionality. Like, there was a time when, essentially, given how much people knew, it was probably fine to oversimplify a neuron. But it's unclear to me that it remains fine to do that. But at the same time, insofar as it doesn't remain fine to do that, like, should we be, we shouldn't really be, like, they. I think they knew they were oversimplifying in the past. I mean, people often kind of come, come at this, this, like, when people come with these renewed critiques, it's as if they feel like they're being very clever. Like, oh, those scientists back then were definitely oversimplifying. I don't know. I mean, I understand that that is sometimes the nature of the critique. I wouldn't say that about this particular paper. No, I don't mean it in this paper. But I mean, when we talk about this, like, it's. I feel like we shouldn't be too dramatic about, like, people being wrong. Like, I think people knew that they were wrong in the past. I don't know. I like, don't think these things are mutually exclusive, you know? It's like, you can you can have a view of science where, like, where people are even being dogmatic or are, are making, like, what you kind of would have to call mistakes or something. But you can also just view that as normal and part of how it works. And then, like, yes, yeah, it's still wrong yes, to come along yes. and be snarky or something. But you don't have to, like, you don't have to completely absolve people in the past of mistakes. Like, you can still view them as mistakes and you can kind of still posit that, like, some of those mistakes could have been avoided or maybe some of them, you know, do you know what I mean? Like we just kind of view it as part of the inevitable mess. And I don't know. I don't think it's, it's not one or the other. Yeah. And that's why I think it's, it's helpful to have these kinds of things that check in and be like, sure. Oh, we're all yes. kind of in the background thinking that neurons are kind of just these like individual things that turn inputs to outputs. But like, let's not forget there are gap junctions and there are dendritic compartments and there are glial cells that all connect to each other and connect to neurons. So you know, just in case, you know, you're confused about something, it might be because the system is more complicated than our kind of base level assumption. And yeah. I think that that's fair. Well, I don't feel that this article really was snarky in the way that I'm concerned about. But it's just any any time when this kind of course correction or re-envisioning is done, I always feel like it's teetering on the edge of being kind of weirdly, uh, weirdly showy in that it's like trying to like, be self-important but, as like a very global. But that's what like Kahal was doing. I mean, a lot of the time it is. This is yeah, the kind yeah, of thing yeah. like some new person who's kind of well known. It's just kind of trying to push stuff in their direction, and they're using whatever the currently accepted like rhetorical means are for doing that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So Kahal was showy. Yeah. I, but like I was going to say another thing. I mean, it's like you could even have a view that like people are deluded or something inevitably in periods of science like it's not like you know if i'm effectively holding a very you know, there's a difference between what people say they're thinking and what people are actually kind of thinking as inferred from their behavior so like you know i can be saying like you were suggesting grace oh i'm aware of these things in the background let's keep them in mind i'm i suspect that a lot of the time like even if people say that they kind of functionally can't actually be bearing all that shit in mind they are just making a bunch of assumptions and like going along with a, with something in order to make progress and that those assumptions may be kind of like uh you know reinforced and suspend and like kind of uh maintained by by like you know the current paradigm quote unquote or whatever um so i'm kind of fine with that view of there being like systematic types of errors quote unquote errors for a while but not i don't i still don't think that that's that doesn't mean that they're like doing it wrong or something do you know what i mean so an ex example of that in this context to try to make this concrete might be that like, despite the fact that I think most people who are in neuroscience are aware of the non oversimplified view, like that they're aware that dendrites sometimes have spikes, they're aware of, you know, the presence of gap junctions some of the time, they're aware of these other properties. When people make, for example, computational models, they're going to like use the simple stereotypical notion. Yeah. Right. And the reason they're doing that is because that's like what's well understood. Like the fact that like if someone's writing a paper saying, hey, but be aware of all these other details that like we know exist, but we don't know anything. We don't know enough about them 
to make it for necess- like necessary for computational modeling to take account of these. That that makes it that that's kind of a weird place. I mean, it's either like it's either saying something everyone knows or it's trying to persuade people to broaden the scope of what they would incorporate into sort of standard practice. Yeah, because there is kind of a hard threshold when it comes to what does your work actually contain. Like I also, like I acknowledge that there are dendrites and that they probably play important roles, but I've never modeled them in my work. Um, And so, yeah, I think, I mean, there's an argument to be made that you should always try to build the simplest model and see what it can get done before you add in details. But then like, what counts as detail and which details should be added in which order, it's all very complicated. So and I think, I mean, it's going to depend on the individual problem that a person is trying to understand as well. I mean, this, this, I feel like an, an like there's an analogy to this kind of what I would consider like reminder slash criticism kind of article. And we've seen this more broadly, especially I feel like in, in criticism of the sciences from the outside, mm-hmm. like from the humanities, it's sort of like you're you're saying something like like oh that science is oversimplified and so its conclusion should be interpreted with some degree of caution. It's like either you're saying something that people know, or you're saying something that you're trying to remind people because you don't feel like they're like like they're they're being sufficiently cautious mm. about those those details that they're neglecting. But at the same time, if like if it were useful, I feel like. For people to take into consideration the sort of extra details that they're omitting, then they would. The reason they're not doing that is because they don't yet know how. So, like the the nudge, the like the reminder criticism, the reminder slash criticism article, to me has like a kind of inherent shortcoming, which is that it's telling people that they ought to be doing something that they don't know how to do, and it often doesn't provide insight into how they can do it better. Because Josh is criticizing the criticizers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Remind them to be better at their criticisms and reminders. It's like without with like the criticism is fine, but like without constructive criticism, is it does it really add so much value? If they say, hey, there's some details about neurons that no one really thinks about except for the people who think about them and they're a minority, uh, you should you should take into consideration those details. But it doesn't really tell you why that's useful. Like you're, you're just tasked with figuring it out, and maybe that's worthwhile, maybe it's not. But it's not clear that to me the reminder criticism article really is constructive in in nudging people to do that. But maybe it, I don't know. I've, I don't know what this reminder that. criticism article. I mean, this is you're using like one term for like for what? I mean, there's like so much writing about science. I think for this particular article, it's more just a documenting of all the ways in which neurons are potentially comprised of subunits or collectively act together as a unit. Mm. And I think in that way, it's just it's just a helpful document of scientific findings. Yeah. Whether or not it nudges sure. anyone in any direction is not super relevant to me in this one. We can talk about the next one, um, which kind of goes in the exact opposite direction. So this first one was saying like, oh yeah, we think of neurons as individual units, but in reality, you know, they're more complicated internally and you know maybe they have physical connections with other cells so you know on this very kind of almost on the level at which the neuron doctrine was originally discussed for the most part this this the first article kind of responds on that level this next article um from the neuron doctrine to neural networks kind of makes the claim that i guess networks of neurons are the functional unit so it's again it's not it's kind of throwing out the whole anatomical debate that you know Golgi and Cajal were staining neurons in order to to solve and just is thinking more about the functional unit. Um, And so it's claiming that collections of neurons should be thought of as the functional unit rather than individual neurons. So does this article provide a definition of functional unit that we can sort of grapple with a little bit or no? The closest thing I can think of is that they say Despite, you know, attempts to study individual neurons, a general theory of brain function with the explanatory power to account for behavioral or cognitive states or explain mental pathologies remains elusive. So what they want is a characterization of the brain that can do all of those things. Which I guess most people in the contemporary parlance would say like systems neuroscience or systems and cognitive neuroscience to describe. I think that's fair, yeah. But also to be fair, systems neuroscience... um, insofar as it's done, you know, in 
monkeys and mice and things is usually about individual neuron recordings still. Hmm. It just records from a lot of them at once, which I get. So, I mean, this gets to the heart of what I consider the problem of this article, which is that it's not saying that you should take some aggregate measure of neural populations. Like, for example, the local field potential, which we talked about in our oscillations episode. You stick an electrode into the brain and you pick up some weird signal. It's just like one signal that's meant to represent some some total of activity of multiple neurons in that area. This is claiming that you should know the activity of individual neurons. You should, you know, measure the activity of individual neurons separately. You should just have a bunch of them, which to me is still perfectly in line with the neuron doctrine. It's saying you need to know individual neuron activity. You should just know a bunch of it, which I mean, is obvious because the brain has many neurons. So you're not going to understand the brain by literally one neuron. You're going to understand the brain by putting together a bunch of individual neurons. It's like this thing, what, this thing Alex was talking about, hard and whatever emergence and stuff. It's just, these debates are always so confusing. Oh, you mean on our last In our last episode? episode, yeah. These things are always so confusing when it's like, what is the unit or something? It's like, well, ah, oh God, there's so many, there's so much like context hidden in someone making a, like that, like asking that question. There's so much like that has led to them posing that question kind of. Which in this case is just kind of, right, we know probably from being within systems neuroscience for a bit is like, it's just that people could kind of record single neurons and that led them to like make a lot of statements that were sort of about single neurons and trying to relate those to behavior. And then like people were like at some point could obviously could record more neurons and kind of did the obvious things that well actually probably like there's things that we've been overlooking because we've been recording single neurons. I mean, is that just kind of... That's that's what's motivating this. So it's it, it's weird. I mean, it feels almost disingenuous the way this question is posed. Well, so like yeah, right. So people who record from individual neurons during behavior, like classic classical physiology, like people who are still within systems neuroscience, but kind of using a slightly older set of tools that are still quite relevant today. Um, those people are going to usually assert the importance of single neurons, as you said. And now there's also this sort of there's a there's a suite of tools that'll let you like record from small populations of neurons or small to medium sized populations. We're talking like tens to like a thousand neurons, maybe. And people will talk about the importance of that number of neurons for solving certain kinds of problems or being involved in certain kinds of tasks. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who use like fMRI, and those people tend to talk about like how What's really important are the interactions between different brain regions, but they talk about brain regions at like the sort of centimeter scale um, or larger. And so they're they're not usually when they talk about the interactions between brain regions, they're talking about the sort of aggregate signals from that whole brain region. A lot of this, I mean, kind of following what you're saying, it is kind of just people will think that there's importance in whatever signals they're recording. And I mean, there's... Re- there is like in, in, all of those statements can be kind of true, right? But there to be can fair, be information at all of those scales, but it's maybe different kinds of information, and it's hard to figure out how all of those different pieces of information are related. And to be fair, right. when people record from an individual neuron and think that it's important, they don't think that that actual individual <laughs> neuron is important, and if they kill that neuron, the animal won't be able to think. They just think that they can understand how the population of neurons work by studying an example. Individual neurons, yeah. yeah. So it's not, uh, that's the thing that's I mean, confusing yeah. to me. The, if you try to understand what an individual neuron does, it doesn't mean that you believe that they act in isolation. It just... Although you have, I have, I mean, there are experiments that exist where people will try to do things like yeah. kill a few neurons. Exactly. Okay, yeah. But that's to test the robustness of the population. It makes sense that when people, you know, like Shadlin and Newsom, right, had some of these experiments in the 90s where like, it makes sense. I think to me, it makes sense that they kind of thought of this and were like, let's see, you know, they were like, oh, we can predict some stuff in this really simple context from like, you know, from the firing of one neuron when a monkey's like making a really simple decision. We can predict something from it. And so then they were like, well, I wonder what would happen if we like, you know, just like messed with the firing of like a few neurons in a little tiny area. And they found that sometimes it had behavioral effects. So, you know. Yeah, and that's that's an empirical question about how this network of neurons work. The people who do those experiments don't believe that that neuron connects to like the monkey's arm directly, and that's why it's having an effect. They still believe it functions as part of a network. 
And I think that's kind of... Yeah. So some of the critiques in this piece that try to make the, the claim that there's something wrong about kind of the focus on individual neurons is like ideas that neurons usually aren't that... The, the activity of neurons is not usually that easy to interpret. Like you can in certain primary sensory areas get kind of a neat mapping between, oh, if I put in this visual input, this neuron will respond a certain way. And so you can feel like you understand what that individual neuron represents. And I agree that you shouldn't, we shouldn't expect to understand the brain that way. Neurons have responses that are very complex and depend on a whole bunch of different things that we're not aware of yet. And so that level of very like easily interpreted understanding of the function of an individual neuron is probably not super valuable to continue on, even though it got us kind of pretty far in how we think about the brain. So I'm fine with that, but I don't think that that means that individual neurons aren't functional units. You still need to know the activity of individual neurons to know the activity of a population, to know what that population represents in whatever complex way it represents it. You might need to know just statistics of the activity or something, right? And this is, is, the, is it the functional unit then or something? I just don't know what a functional unit is. Like if you only have to know the average firing of every of like blocks of 500 neurons, are the neurons functional units still? Yeah, um, so I agree. So... The, the article makes points in opposite directions in that regard because they bring up the fact that neurons um, will sometimes have oscillations in unison with each other, like a group of neurons will show the same oscillations. Um, and so that's an argument for why it's a functional unit because they're all acting in the same way. And so that's the notion that you need a bunch of neurons to act in the same way for it to be a functional unit. But then they also bring up the fact that if you add neurons to your population of neurons that you're recording, the population contains more information than the individual neurons, which means that the neurons aren't all doing the same thing. They have to be doing different things for them to add information. So it goes both ways, and that's why I don't feel like it's a super coherent argument. I think it's trying to say that populations of neurons, each doing their own thing, is what's important, and I agree with that. But then sometimes it tries to make the claim that populations of neurons are all acting together as a functional unit. He talks somewhere about emergent functional states. Ensembles generate emergent functional states that by definition cannot be identified by studying one neuron at a time. I mean, that's like pretty trivial. Like, if you want to characterize a system with many parts, you may need to have information about their correlation, like structure. So Yeah, I wrote in my notes on that section, emergent, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Emergent, I hate this thing. I, I never understand this emergent thing. I should just understand this someday. Emergent properties arise from interactions among elements, but are, by definition, not present in the individual elements. It's metaphysical sounding to me. Present in? Like, obviously, if it's like, if it's two fucking neurons going back and forth between each other or something, obviously that behavior isn't present in, like, but it's just not mysterious, right? Like I agree. And I want you to feel free to not try to understand this because I've given up understanding it and it's well, so, been the best decision of my life. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean if we just, I, like, I mean, I think Connor, 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 Connor's kind of hitting on it, like the non-mystical version of it. Like if, for example, you had two neurons that have some sort of interaction, maybe mediated by others or maybe directly such that they oscillate, right? One neuron fires and then the other neuron fires and then they like have some periodicity, you know, there's a sense in which like that oscillator doesn't or couldn't exist without there being multiple neurons. So studying one in isolation might not be enough. I guess in that case, there's the interesting like nuance that a single neuron would still be oscillating. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of the least compelling example of emergence. No, but I mean, yeah. I, maybe maybe all of the examples of emergence are kind of like that. Well, that's that's like a sen that's a dimensionality thing. That's like a sensing thing. It's like how many how many measurements do you need to take to characterize the behavior of the whole thing? So if it's a two neuron, if they're just anti-correlated, then it's yeah. Or if you've got like, yeah, if you've got a thousand neurons that are correlated and a thousand that are anti-correlated with that other thousand, like so two populations going back and forth, then you know you maybe. You could do a kind of a random sampling thing, like how many measurements you have to make to like characterize the whole thing or something. Maybe it's only a few or whatever. Right? Is this related to what you were saying? Yeah. No, it's interesting. It is interesting to think if there are toy examples where it becomes like very clear what the what the issue is. Can you think of a toy example that makes you satisfied, Connor? About what what emergence is? There's. I mean, okay. So or, if the common example is birds flocking, you could say like. You cannot say anything about like the shape of the flock by looking at one bird. I think that's the point. 
I mean, he gives the example of just like if you look at a TV screen, you can't know what it is. You can't know what the image is by looking by at looking at the one pixel pixels one at a time or yeah. something. Yeah. So these are all kind of aggregate shape. I mean, in that sense, the the oscillator is like a legitimate example, except for the fact that you get a moderately good estimation of the shape of the population by looking at one. The path of one bird, maybe like in retrospect, that would tell you some information about the shape of the flock. Right. Exactly. If you randomly know the paths of like n birds, like how well can you re yeah. how how well can you reconstruct the position of every other bird or something, and how, how big does n have to be until it's almost perfect or something like that. But this. the point of all of this is that if you had all of the information about all the birds or all the information about all the pixels, you would be able to know the shape of the flock and the picture on the TV screen. And there's something that people want to point to when they talk about emergence that suggests that you couldn't do that. That's the mystical element that I find uninteresting. When I try to justify this kind of thinking, I always it always ends up to seeming to me about the way we think. So it's kind of like we have a. It's more like a like a, a choice of concepts thing. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Like it's an injunction that says try to use like just scramble to use concepts that are more aggregate or population-y because we have a hint we have an intuition that that's just going to be an easier way to think about this problem do you know what i mean like it might be just easier to model things at different levels uh, where and but then like easier starts to become about like what the point of modeling is right <laughs> so then it becomes like we're you know then it becomes dependent on like the goals of scientists and this kind of thing but i think that's actually probably a lot of the time what's going on when people talk about emergence it's like uh we kind of are getting lost if we are thinking too much about the single atom so let's just push ourselves to think more about their aggregate properties or something like that yeah i think that makes sense yeah and i think that's fine i just think that i don't know that that's super relevant to this idea of you know the neuron doctrine and what's the functional unit i mean right i still think that it makes sense to record from a bunch of individual well no but i mean it does get i mean if we talk about like how fmri is used to study questions i mean Depending on what kind of mechanisms you're satisfied with or what kind of answers you're satisfied with, this question is related, right? It's like, are you willing to talk about an explanation for behavior in the context of two brain regions interacting? Or do you require an understanding of how the neurons within those brain regions produce the activity and interactions between those brain regions? But that's not what's being discussed. Well, no, I mean, that's... not saying that you... At least the majority of this article is saying you need a bunch of individual neural neuron activity. It's not saying use an fMRI voxel, which is one value that represents some I agree. weird I, collective. I of agree. A bunch I of was neurons. talking more about like just in in general. I think it is relevant to the discussion to accept that explanations could occur at different levels of abstraction. And to me, sure. essentially, that's what the question of emergence probably relates to. Um, mm-hmm. And then in, the, in this context, I think uh, Rafa is advocating for a particular level of explanation being, in some sense, the right one, maybe, if, if we try to, to sort of uh, lean into his point, right? It's, it's that you're not going to get satisfactory explanations looking at one neuron. Like, sure. just one neuron. Yes, I agree I mean, that. maybe that's obvious to us. Like, maybe that's very obvious to us. Now, this seems so obvious as to be like useless. To me, it's a little bit frustrating because I do feel like it's pretty obvious that we're going to need to have theories that are that have that use concepts probably at a number of different levels, and we already have that. And we need to think about like how they link up and stuff like this. So, like to just go repeating the point that we have to think about networks at this point is like seems very just doesn't seem to add a huge amount. But maybe that's like a misreading of where the field is still at or something. Yeah. I think this really gets at it, which is that like we're all computational neuroscientists vested in the study of populations of neurons. Maybe this is more uh, a sort of in- invitation to other people in the field who are not thinking in, in this way. Um, yeah, that seems right. I guess it's just frustration with the rhetorical style. Like I feel like the interesting points of this paper are more about like going through some of the details of what it means to think about networks. Yeah, that's fair. Like, yeah, we have a bunch of concepts about how a neuron can encode information or something, and then it's like, ooh, what are the ways the populations can do computation? Like, that's a, that's a huge question. Like, how are how could you do computation with a bunch of neurons, right? It's like it's and there's loads of 
ideas, like specific, you know, work through ideas that people have about this. Um, and that's like interesting to me, very interesting. So, uh, you know, he touched on some of that. He touched on a number of examples of that. Um, I mean, and this, this is what the field of computational neuroscience tries to elaborate in part. I mean, that is what... Yeah, yeah, yeah a good, good section of the The, the modeling side of computational neuroscience tries to... Okay, we're done? That's okay. So, is there anything else we want to talk about? No one wants to talk about Gilbert Ling anymore? I think he's, he's just a fascinating guy. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm like holding out hope that we get self-righteous... You want people to respond antagonism. to this podcast saying, wait, in which direction? <laughs> that iron pumps aren't real? Or, like, yeah. be mad that you're bringing up the controversy? Well, I assume no one would be mad at me for merely speaking about a controversy. <laughs> unless hey, they're the people who are... It's blasphemy, okay? <laughs> <laughs> So should we end on the note that we welcome people yelling at us? Or... Yeah, that's fine. All right. Till next time. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast? Give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks.